first story I wrote for the mail was about sewage spillages. When you put it on a map and you show people these are where the really big leaks are and someone looks and sees that's outside my house or just like down the end of the road or indeed the river I swim in. Giving them that kind of information allows them to then grapple with it, to contact their councillor or MP and speak about it. That's Daniel Timms. He's been the Mill's data and policy reporter for the last few months. He's been under the bonnet of Greater Manchester, drilling into the numbers, assessing the trends to figure out what's really going on. He's our guest on this week's podcast. Welcome to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris, and in his new home, not in fact in the office, working from new home today, Yoshi. Hello, Yoshi. Hello. Hello. Congrats on the new home. What a lovely moment that is. It's always a really nice moment, that, isn't it, when you get a new home? Yeah, yeah. It's, I've, I've got a house now. I live in Lady Barn in South Manchester. So there's going to be a lot of Lady Barn-based content on the mill from now on, <laughs> boosting the area, really trying to drive drive up the reputation of Lady Barn. But no, it seems like a really nice area. Um, quite near. Tell me about it, because I've, no, I've never been to, to Lady Barn before. Yeah, so it's, it's basically on, on the edge of Fallowfield and Withington. I think a lot of people consider it part of Fallowfield now, but it's, it used to be its own area. I think it still technically is. Got a little high street, got a co-op, got an Afghan bakery, got an amazing Indian actually. And there's quite, the, you know, it's it's a mixed area, there are a lot of students living here because we're very near the Fallowfield campus. Uh, a lot of people who've been here for ages. There isn't a pub, but there's a social club which you have to join, which I will be joining, £30 a year. Two full-size snooker tables upstairs, which is excellent. So yeah, I'm bedding in and, that, and that's why I'm here today actually. Pardon the pun. It's because my um, my mattress has just arrived, and it was a terrifying process. Actually, the guys were like, "Have you ever received a rolled up mattress before?" And I was like, "No," <laughs> and, the, and and it was literally rolled up in like a very very tiny box. And I said no, and they were like, "Cut this, cut this, cut this. Don't cut this." And I, I was like, "Slow down, slow down. What do I need to do?" They were like, "Don't cut." The chloroform at the same start time as the steriform or whatever you know the names are. And I said, why not? And they said, because it could throw you across the room. <laughs> it's like, Jesus. So basically you take one layer of the mattress off, then you make sure that it's laid out. Then you take the other layer off because at that point it fills up with air. It's like, you know, it's like you're going to Glastonbury and you put your air bed out and it, you know, one of those ones that automatically fills up with air. It's like that because it's had all of the air sucked out of it in order to pack it. And now it needs three hours to recuperate. They were like, don't lie on it. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going wow. to. It's the middle of the working day. <laughs> but they were like, you need to give it a few hours and then it'll then it'll be ready and it'll be acclimatized. It's almost like it's a living creature, this mattress. <laughs> Very violent one. Oh, wow. There's de- I'll tell you what, there's definitely a thousand words in this, Yoshi. This yes. is, I can feel like there's a mill weekend read coming up here. <laughs> yeah, if it. I'm short of a weekend read, I might write about this mattress delivery. I'm sure people will be fascinated. <laughs> anyway, I've got a mattress now. My house is filling up. I've got a, um, a sofa bed in my spare in my living room for people visiting. I'm all ready for my mum and sister to visit this weekend. Lovely, nice one. Oh, well, good man. Enjoy it. Congratulations. Let, let's crash on. We've got we've got a couple of stories to get to, but also a guest on this week's podcast, Yoshi. We're going to spend most of the podcast, I think, talking to Daniel Timms, who's been part of the Mill team for a little while. Just give us a brief intro to, to Daniel. Yeah, Daniel's been an absolute star of the team for the past few months. He's our data and policy reporter. He's been writing a lot of our, of our most successful stuff. And um, I thought it'd be good, good to get him on to ask him about a few of his recent stories, but also why the kind of reporting he's been doing for us really matters. So a bit of a treat to have him on. 
Nice, excellent. Okay, we'll speak to Daniel shortly. Uh, firstly, some business to get to Yoshi. And there is a, this is just an excellent story, an excellent, excellent story <laughs> that is really dividing people, isn't it? It's really, really dividing people. So uh, we, we've all become uh, accustomed to Factory International. We know this this new development just sort of on the edge of the city centre as you sort of head towards uh, Salford. And it's been a bit delayed and very, very costly. And now it's a bit contentious when it comes to what it's actually going to be called, because it's not going to be called Factory International uh, from here on in Yoshi. It's going to be called the Aviva Studios, which has an interesting ring to it. Why? Yeah, so for, for listeners who aren't super aware of Factory International, so for years we have been building in Manchester a massive new cultural venue that's kind of like for live music, but it's also for art. It's got a vast space where you can move the walls around to create different spaces. And it was kicked off as a project by George Osborne, I think. And it's been in the works for ages. And the kind of working title was Factory. Obviously, you know, a, a nod, more than a nod to Tony Wilson and, and the Factory Records. And I, I believe it was George Osborne who announced in a speech that that's what the working name of it was going to be. Then we learned it was going to be called Factory International. And that was obviously a bit of a nod to Manchester International Festival, which is really this is the main venue for Manchester International Festival. And then obviously the rest of the year, it will do lots of other stuff as well. Now, the confusing thing is the company or the organisation that creates the art for this or creates the commissions for this or the commissions for this space will still be called Factory International. But the space itself, this vast cultural venue, will be called Aviva Studios, named after, obviously, the uh, insurance firm Aviva. They've bought the naming rights for 35 million quid, um, which is a massive injection of cash into a cultural venue. I don't know what people think of the name. You say it's divisive. I think to, to be divisive, it has to actually divide people, whereas I think it's united people in their sort of <laughs> revulsion and horror. No, maybe that's too strong. It's united people in thinking it sounds a little bit corporate and a little bit naff. We asked our, our members, what do you think of Aviva Studios as a name? Zero percent say they adore the name. Uh, 74% said they despise the name. As you can see, it was a very scientifically worded survey. Um, yes, it's a very loaded language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, don't mind the name got 25%. So there's a bit of Mancunian pragmatism in there. There are definitely some people who are like, don't care about the name. Don't care if it sounds a little bit naff because that, this is a massive injection of money. And as we know, local taxpayers, national taxpayers have put in more, you know, masses of money for this the total cost is going to think be around 210 million it was that's more than double what it was going to be originally that's funded largely by national taxpayers arts council local taxation i.e the you know manchester city council and the council is going to get the bulk of the or the biggest share of the 35 million i think so it's kind of a bit of a payback for the council taking such a big risk on the spiraling and cost of this venue um what is the venue Honestly, it's a bit unclear. Like, there's going to be a big Danny Boyle Matrix thing there. There's going to be a big, you know, contemporary art thing there. It's it's officially opening in October, although there are going to be some things around it for Manchester International Festival, which is coming up very soon. And I would say, like, when we, we did an event recently, which, shockingly, you did not attend, Daryl. We did this event and we talked a bit. Julie Hesmondash was there and we talked about... Are people excited about Factory? Are they critical of it? Um, I would say the most people in the room seem to be a bit like 
neither really excited nor really skeptical. They're just a bit like, I don't really know what this is going to be. I don't really know what it's for. And I, I'd kind of put myself in that camp as well. Like I obviously want it to be a massive success, but I've yet to truly understand what it is. So Sophie's actually going to interview the, the chief exec uh, to find out a bit more. But yeah, Aviva Studios, what do you think of it? I find it very disappointing. I do find it very disappointing. I mean, I'm, I'm, well, I am. Well, if, if I was to say it was divisive, mm. um, it's then that's just an insight into my own head because my head is divided really mm. on mm. it. In in that, you know, in that it is disappointing because, um, yeah, yeah, nobody wants to see a sort of corporate blanket thrown over something that could be really. Um, you know, raw and independent and artistic and have that kind of independent mank spirit to it that we like our cultural institutions to try to retain. But then again, I am also a pragmatist and 35 million is a lot of money that can go a long way to cover the cost of it and to help with it. I think you're right. I think actually the bigger, the biggest question of all, the biggest question of them all is, and, and I, I wonder if Aviva knows something that we don't, given the fact they've put a, whole, a hell of a lot of money into it, you know, is what, what is it? Is what, what is it going to be? Because I, like you, I've still not quite sort of really properly, be, it feels very Millennium Dome, doesn't it? The thing um, is, I think like, is it Millennium Dome as in it becomes a bit of a white elephant or is it Tate Modern, Turbine Hall, you know, one of the most successful new venues in, and I know it wasn't a new building, but new kind of cultural venues in Britain for a very long time. And and, and it's, it's that kind of scale, the main space. So I think that even if they don't nail it at the beginning, surely someone will work out how to best use this space. Julie Hesmondalsh, who we had at the event, she was very um, hopeful, positive about it. Some of the members were kind of less so. I said in the, in the news letter yesterday that, that, Aviva Studio sounds a bit like the kind of Pilates zone at a suburban gym. Um, I, I think it's a bit of a weird... Also, studios is a bit odd, right? A few people on Twitter were saying, studios makes it sound... I, I'm going to quote someone, actually. Oliver Carter on Twitter. Someone on Twitter said, I think the studios bit makes it sound like a private film production company or building, not open to the public and doesn't distinguish it as the cultural space it's meant to be or it's built to be, um, which which is interesting. And, and the comedian Ali Wilson wrote, I have a lot of love for Manchester International Festival, but the ever-changing branding and now corporate sponsorship pushes me further and further away. I don't know what this organisation is, who it's for, what it does. Aviva Studios, the building doesn't even have a re- rehearsal space, question mark. So... I would say the reaction so far has been very negative to the name. Maybe you'd expect that, like any corporate sponsorship, but like when the Etihad Stadium was named or I'm trying to think of other big ones. I don't know what the reaction when the Tate was originally named after the Tate um, Sugar family. But like, you know, it's like, what was that Bolton one? I mean, you got a horrible name for your stadium not so long ago, didn't you? Or was it your shirt sponsor? Well, yeah, that that actually is, is not a terrible, it's not a terrible in comparison because... Um, because, because you know, football fans get very precious about the naming around things. They like things to be kind of really nice and sleek and sound sexy and, and you know, the kit sponsor to be a beautiful, beautifully designed logo. And ultimately you end up with a betting company or, you know, or some some big block orange letters or something like that. Because that's the just that's the sort of reality of the corporate world in which these places, in, in which institutions like Baltimore Wanderers rely. So we have... We have the tough, the tough sheet stadium uh, is is going to be the name of uh, the stadium from next season. However, however, it is an odd name, and it's um, you know it, it raised a few eyebrows and it trended on Twitter. And actually, it was great. It was to be honest, it was great publicity. But it's a local company who are doing. They're a sustainable building materials company who do brilliant things. Local guy supported Bolton his, his whole life. The business has taken off. It's worth 
an absolute fortune. He's probably worth meeting, actually. You know, as, uh, I would probably, you know, have a chat with him for the mill, perhaps, because he is a really interesting local guy. He named the business with his tongue in his cheek a little bit. Um, so it's, you know, it, the, the, the pun is on purpose. And so it's got some roots. It's got some, it's got some, you know, relevance to the town. There's a bit of authenticity to it. It's got some truth. There's something real about it. And I think that's what's just really missing in... So everybody can say, well, it's a stupid name, but it's, but it's got really good yeah. purpose and meaning behind it. Whereas Aviva Studios does feel very hollow. It feels very corporate. It feels very detached from what Manchester International Festival is supposed to be. Yeah, and, and like the arena used to be called the MEN Arena, right? And like the MEN is like, whatever you think of it, it's a local company with long roots in Manchester. Now it's called, a, is it called the AO Arena? I think it's AO, which is, which, is, which is a local company. They are based in Bolton. Oh, AO, fair enough. So. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. So there is that, at least. Oh, yeah, I, I was completely ignorant of that. But look, I, I don't know. It, I don't think the name is the most important thing. I do think it's like... You know, it's a sign of how everything these days in this country has to be done as a public-private partnership. There's no such thing as a big public project anymore. Everything's got to be done with with companies involved. You've seen that in Manchester's development, Spinning Fields or New Islington or, you know, even hospitals get built now as, as public-private partnerships. So I think that, like, this is a pretty obvious example of that. I'd rather have a great venue with a slightly naff name than not have a great venue. So let's hope it's a really good venue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. All right. Let's um, let's uh, another quick story before we get to speak to Daniel and um, uh, Yoshi. Can you explain to me why Greater Manchester's mayor and council leaders have been writing to government this week? Yeah. So this was an interesting letter from Andy Burnham and all the council leaders in Greater Manchester, and they wrote to the Home Secretary about very serious concerns they have about what will happen when the Afghan bridging hotels, which is the accommodation used by the Home Office to house refugees from Afghanistan, um, what will happen when they close? So in the letter, they said that the residents in these hotels have begun to receive their 90-day notices to leave. And they said that the local authorities, i.e. the councils, are working tirelessly to ensure that these people you know, find accommodation, find homes, um, other places to live. But the leaders in this letter say that the lack of affordable housing and the short time scale are going to make it really difficult. And something I picked out in this letter that I thought was really interesting was they said in this letter that Greater Manchester has double the national average rate of people who are made homeless as a result of being told to leave home office accommodation i.e. accommodation for asylum seekers. And they are one worried that, that with these Afghan hotels, with the Afghan refugees, that's going to become worse. And I just thought that double thing was interesting. I probably could have worked that out from publicly available data before, but I've never seen it presented that way. Double the number of people, um, a proportion of homeless people, who've, who've come from you know having to leave home office accommodation. And, and when we were reporting on homelessness last year in Manchester, Jack and... Alex Slater and the other reporters on the story kept on going to temporary accommodation blocks and meeting people who we couldn't communicate with very well because they didn't speak English. And so we had a strong sense that a meaningful part of the homelessness problem in Manchester was to do with people who had come from overseas, um, some of whom had clearly been asylum seekers. And when we asked 
officials at the council about that on the record, they were pretty cagey. Like they didn't really want to talk about it. Maybe they were worried that like the far right would pick up on it and homelessness would stop being seen as like a worthy social problem and, and, and would start to be seen as a kind of, uh, you know, people from overseas coming here and clogging up the homelessness system and trying to kind of think about how it might be criticised from the far right. But for whatever reason, they didn't really want to talk about it. And yet it was clearly a thing. And now here's a letter from Greater Manchester's leader saying, "Yeah, it is a thing. We've got, we, we, we've, you know, quite a few of the people who are in, 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 in temporary accommodation, have, um, have been told to, to, to leave, you know, asylum seeker accommodation. And that's just, I mean, that's five percent, right? But that's only the people who've just been told to leave. There'll be other people in, um, in temporary accommodation, homeless accommodation, who at some point." Um, were in the asylum system and then they found some other rental accommodation or whatever and then they're in the homelessness system so it's it's a bigger part than just that percentage but even that percentage is double the national average I thought that was really interesting um, and we will definitely watch this Afghan hotels problem in the next few months well, extraordinary story that yeah very much so um, okay manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe to make sure that you're across that story um, as it's explored more Let's move on to our guest on this week's podcast. Now, for the last couple of months, The Mill has had an in-house data and policy report. So you might have seen some of his work already. Uh, He is Daniel Timms. And uh, Yoshi, introduce us to Daniel. I first came across Daniel when I was writing a story for The Mill. And Daniel was working for a consultancy called Metro Dynamics, which mill readers might know about because we quote their work recently. They do very interesting work with local governments. They advise local leaders on economics. It was co-founded by Mike Emmerich, um, who who listeners will know about because he's a, an economist and a, a sort of analyst and a big figure in Manchester and, and then the devolution process. So anyway, that's how I first came across Daniel. And we spoke for a, a story. And then Daniel started writing the odd freelance story for the Tribune, which is obviously our um, sister newsletter in Sheffield. Um, and since then, obviously, some of those stories did really, really well on the Tribune. And then Daniel thankfully had a had a gap in his life between working for Metro Dynamics and starting a, a course at university. So I asked him if he'd join us for four months to do a data and policy brief to write stuff for us that is insightful, that uses data to try and inform stories that we write about, tries to help people to understand public policy and education and health and um, crime and lots of other things. And that's what Daniel's been doing for the next three months. And I think we've got Daniel on the line. You have. Hello. Hey, Daniel. Hi. Hello, Daniel. I think I've asked you this in the, in the course of the past couple of months since you've been writing for us, but how does doing this journalistic role compared to the kind of analysis role before you had before as a consultant because you were kind of covering some fairly similar topic areas but obviously now you're doing it as journalism which must feel quite different yeah it does i guess kind of quick turnaround some of the stuff we do like you don't have months and months to work on a report you have to summarize something quickly get it out get it across and i think the other thing i've actually really enjoyed doing the journalism is like there's kind of a bit more freedom there's no client at the end of it who's paying for it you can kind of write about what you find interesting and where you want to go with it so yeah it's been good and and so daniel just take us into a story that you've you're working on i think this week very recently actually about affordable housing which is a big issue not just in greater manchester but but nationally and you've been kind of unpicking haven't you some of the sort of trends behind social housing and perhaps 
issues in particular with developers including affordable housing in their schemes what did you what did you find as you as you went about unpicking that story yeah i mean what's interesting is that is a housing crisis pretty much nationwide the difference in manchester is that loads and loads of houses are being built but it doesn't seem to really be solving the problem and the idea is that developers are meant to be forced, and it's actually council policy that they'll be strongly encouraged to put 20% of their units as affordable, so that's going to significantly below the market rate. But what's interesting is when you start looking at schemes, that just isn't happening at all. At the start of this month, we look back at their planning a few major, major schemes in really prime locations with no affordable housing at all. So I sort of tried to get into why that was, and you trawl through the documents and there's this really key one that keeps coming up which is viability assessment it's called which is where they have to sort of essentially prove that it wouldn't really be profitable for them to put uh, that more affordable housing in they get this protected 20 percent profit and they kind of always able to prove really that they wouldn't be able to get that so i was just exploring why that was uh what's going on there i had a bit of a chat to someone in the planning committee as well to understand it and i think the answer is sort of I don't think that developers are necessarily lying for these viability appraisals. They are assessed by the council. They they didn't used to be published. It was all quite shady, but now they do publish it and they, they can be reviewed. You can go and look online yourself if you want. But the cost of land is so sort of hugely high in Manchester, particularly city centre developments, that even something that makes a lot of money could still be below that, that 20% threshold. And that's something that I found really interesting in your piece was there's this set threshold... And that's a government thing, right? That's not a thing that Manchester City Council can say, actually, no, the threshold for us is going to be 10%. In effect, this is an issue where the council gets a lot of grief, but where they are effectively implementing a government rule. Is, is, is that about right? Yeah, that's right. And um, it is all about the percentage. So one of the councillors who was opposing uh, one of the schemes pointed out that in the financial work that had been done, even if the uh, 20% was included, the developer would make eight and a half million pounds, which you know, seems like a vast sum of money. Why why can't they go ahead and do that? So yeah, it's pretty constrained. And if they don't follow the kind of government set planning policy on this kind of stuff, they can then be taken to court by the developer. If they haven't managed to prove that the financial calculations the developers come up with are wrong, then um, they're on the hook. So most of the time they just have to go along with it. Wow, how interesting. Okay, another story that you worked on that was, I suppose, unlike the housing story, isn't a big national story, isn't one of those things that everybody's talking about, but feels, Daniel, really, really important. And that was some work that you did on comparing Manchester schools to schools around the country, in particular, London. Uh, take us into that. What, again, what did you find? Yeah, it was an interesting story because what I was trying to get a grip on is have schools improved? And it's quite hard to know over the long term, you know, the exam system changes. We've just had this new sort of one to nine system brought in in the last few years. Obviously, we've had the COVID disruption as well, which has massively impacted education. So it's hard to get a grip on on some of this stuff. But what I did, as you say, is I compared it to the national picture back in 1992 when people were taking their A-levels and then in the last year, 2022, when people were taking their A-levels, GCSEs, um, both times. And what's interesting, particularly to compare to London, is the two cities have gone in different directions. So if you look at Greater London boroughs back in 1992, even the worst RA in Greater Manchester was you know, better than the inner city London sort of boroughs and East London boroughs. That's completely changed. Now there's not a single London borough that's as bad as some of the Greater Manchester's boroughs like Rochdale and, and Salford. So I just wanted to kind of unpick what's, what's going on there and understand it a bit more. 
And one of the sort of interesting findings that came out was actually there is an exception, which is Trafford, the third best borough in, in the whole country, it turns out, for its school results. Yes, yeah, sorry, Daniel. What's what's driving the difference in Trafford? It's it's got a different type of approach to a secondary education, doesn't it? That's right. There's far more in the way of selective schools. So even among non-fee-paying schools, you've got many more grammar schools. The Altrium Grammar School for Girls is the seventh best for results in the last year in England. And it's interesting when you start to pull it apart because you can see both how that benefits kids who do well and how it also doesn't benefit kids who don't do so well. So the the children who go to that school. Uh, all those selective schools in uh, Trafford get much better results than national average, but they also progress more than you'd expect. So even though they did well at their sort of key stage two SATs the last time they were examined, they've then made more progress than you'd expect by the time they get to their GCSEs. Interesting, what you see on the flip side is those non-selective schools in Trafford, which is about half of the other schools, actually students there do worse than you'd expect given what they got in their SATs. So there's this kind of effect where if you're around lots of, you know, if you're bright and you're around lots of other bright students, you do better. But if uh, you're not as academically gifted and you don't have those other students around you, you tend to do worse. Um, So it's an interesting picture. Just to be clear, those Trafford overperforming selective schools, they from my understanding, are sucking in kids from kind of middle-class, ambitious families across the south of Manchester, Stockport as well. So you've kind of got lots of, not, you know, not pushy families, but families who are, you know, very focused on education, are sending kids to the Trafford schools. They're not just educating kids from Trafford, right? No, absolutely not. And um, in my piece, I included a map to show for one of the schools in Altrincham, again, the Grammar School for Girls, the sort of a hugely bigger catchment area compared to one of the just sort of local um, high schools. And as you say, it means they can pull in some of the brightest and the best from from Manchester, Stockport, which again perhaps creates challenges for some of those other schools in those areas. Speaking of disparities, Daniel, there's another another story of disparity in Greater Manchester, and that is with trees. This is a story that you were working on, which was a shock hit. <laughs> a box office it was. Hit. People loved it. People loved it. <laughs> And you were sort of, and you, so you were, you were trying to work your way through trees that had these tree protection orders, right? So just explain, just explain to us what a tree protection order is. Uh, yeah, so communities can take these out. I mean, they need to persuade the council to go ahead with it. But um, if they're worried that their tree might be uh, removed in a future development or that kind of thing, they can have one of these TPOs put on the tree to keep it safe and it sort of means that if you were then to cut it down the council would have to sign off and say yes we're happy for this to be cut down which obviously is hugely unpopular so it's rarely going to happen and when you look at it yeah 98 percent of the protected trees in manchester are in the south of the city very few in the center very few uh, that's an astonishing north. finding i mean basically and- all of the protected trees are south of the city center in generally speaking, the more affluent bits of South Manchester. That's right, yeah. I mean, a quarter were in uh, Didsbury West alone, which is one of Manchester's uh, wards. So good place to be a tree if you, if you want to be kept safe. And it's interesting, I mean, more and more development pressure is now coming to the north of Manchester. There's obviously the kind of Northern Gateway area and uh, there'll be more development there soon. So the conclusion of the piece was, you know, it's a good time to think about protecting some of those trees because obviously yeah, it matters hugely to communities. I live in Sheffield. The political saga of the last decade essentially has been cutting down uh, street trees and uh, there's just been an apology from the council for that this week. So um, people really care about their trees. Why is it then that the, the majority of these protected trees are in South Manchester? 
That's a good question. I mean, we, we don't know from the data itself. It's sparked a bit of a conversation on the article. You know, some people were saying you've got people in South Manchester who have more either more spare time or more kind of awareness of how the system works, able to make it make it work for them. You've you've also had more kind of development pressure in that area, so that's kind of prompted people wanting to protect their trees before something like that happens. So it's, it's probably a bit of a mix of the two. Wow, oh, uh, fascinating. Uh, okay, really worth a read if you haven't seen that already. ManchesterMill.co.uk for Daniel's work on that. And unfortunately, Daniel, um, you're you're soon to depart uh, the mill, I know. aren't you? Because it's just a sort of in-between role before you start uh, a course in, in September. But I think it's fair to say that this kind of reporting, this kind of journalism that is data-led, that gets under the skin of a story, that understands the sort of engine of a story, is A, incredibly important, but also quite rare in local journalism as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I think you've seen in the last few years, the nationals invest a lot more money into their data journalism and the COVID pandemic really accelerated it because suddenly we had this phenomenon no one really understood or exactly what was going on and you just needed data to know, yeah, how bad was it? Where was it spreading? All those sorts of questions. And there's also been a bit of a, you know, advance in some of the tech. So, you know, you'll see now on some of these websites, these interactive data visuals where you can click on bubbles and zoom in on maps and you know five years ago there was very little of that uh but yes i I don't think there is much of it in local journalism i think it's really important uh to understanding our cities um so it's been great to be involved and i've been working with some of the guys here to sort of train them a bit in some of the methods that i've been using as well just on the individual level like on the level of a reader i'm a read the mail or i read the tribune or i read the post why do you think it's important for people to understand like the data underlying the local schools or which trees are protected or like why you're obviously someone who's very invested in policy but most people don't know much about policy is that why it matters or like to you why do you think it matters to an individual why why is it good for individual readers to have more of an awareness of what's going on in the policy world i think it matters because it can inform readers about what's happening in their area what matters and it can empower them to do something about it so for instance the first story i wrote for the mail was about sewage uh, spillages i think lots of people know it's kind of vaguely going on and don't like it um, but when you put it on a map and you show people these are where the really big leaks are and someone looks and sees that's outside my house or just like down the end of the road or indeed the river i swim in giving them that kind of information allows them to then grapple with it to contact their councillor or mp and speak about it so I think, and that goes across the whole range, you know, again, you may not be aware that your school is underperforming, um, but you get the data and you begin to see see how that looks. So it enables you to do something about it. The engines for these stories, aren't they, Daniel? The engine for the stories. Well, it's been a real pleasure. I, I haven't worked with you at the mill, Daniel, obviously, so I can't say it's been a pleasure to work with you at the mill, but it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. A pleasure to talk I'm to sure you. that you actually yeah. would say that it's been a pleasure oh, it's to been work a massive, with you. It's mill. been a massive pleasure, honestly. I mean, it, it was a kind of, it was a last minute idea, really, to tr- try and get Daniel in for basically for the summer, the spring and the summer. But it's been it's been an absolute revelation. Like, I feel like we're able to do a broader set of things. Daniel's also sort of taught other people how on the team how to do things. I think it, it's created a template for how to attack certain stories. I'm hoping in the future Daniel will also do a few more things for us, but it's also showed us how to use data reporters, you know, in future. So I, I would say massive thanks to Daniel, but also if you're listening to this, you like this kind of journalism, you think it's valuable, please do come and subscribe to The Mill because that will give us the funds to do more of this in future. And I think long-term we want to have 
a team of um, people who work across our our different cities, but you know, obviously including the male who've got this kind of expertise and who can really give people like the kind of information they need to live their lives and to engage and to take part civically and to know who to vote for and and, and all the rest of it. So yeah, it's been a it's been really really good. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Yoshi, what else is happening in the Mill newsroom, my friend? Oh, there's so much going on. People are taking time off, obviously, because it's that time of year. And therefore, you know, it becomes absolute chaos to plan and get things out and stuff. So we're we're always um, ducking and diving a bit at this time of year. One story we were going to run last weekend, but we didn't because we ran Molly's amazing piece about this far-right group instead, was a piece about... Uh, students at the University of Manchester, what has their experience been like as students? Um, they, We are talking about people who are graduating now and who've been through COVID and who've, you know, lockdowns and remote learning. And it's a fascinating insight to not only how it changed their learning, but how it changed their social life, their dating, the kind of relationships they had. Super, super interesting. The parties, the social structures. So um, I'm hoping that 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 piece is going to come out this weekend. It's a it's a long read by four no three students at the University of Manchester who we've been working on working with on on this story. So that's that's the one to look forward to. I think it's genuinely one of the most sort of interesting and original stories we've done. Fabulous, brilliant. Okay, look forward to that. ManchesterMill.co.uk. Uh, finally, Yoshi, as ever, let's um, have a look at what's going on around Greater Manchester this weekend. What have got your eye on? Yeah, so my recommendation for the weekend would be Julius Caesar um, at the Lowry. Uh, Royal, Royal Shakespeare Company are in town and they're doing performances um, tonight, if you're listening on when it comes out on Thursday, um, Friday and Saturday, and there's also a matinee. Uh, that's at the Lowry in Salford. Nice, excellent. Um, okay, my uh, nod for the weekend is uh, some cricket, actually, because I don't know about you, but I've been, I was really enjoying the Ashes. Yeah, I'm not it's been so good. It's been yeah, so it's good. Fantastic. I'm not... I'm not a mega cricket fan. I'm a football guy, really. And I'm not a mega cricket fan, but I have, in the last couple of years, I went to Old Trafford a few years ago during the Cricket World Cup and I watched, I think, New Zealand versus West Indies. Um, and we were, I went hospitality, right? And I don't know if you've ever been to Old Trafford or Cricket Hospital, but it is just incredible. I mean, it's insane. It's absolutely incredible. They just sort of play with drink all day um, and there's just a constant kind of buffet and they feed you breakfast, lunch and tea and dinner, uh, like a beautiful lamb roast and some spuds for dinner. And like, it was, oh, it's sensational. Sensational. Absolutely. It's probably one of the best days out I've ever had, actually, to be honest. And then the cricket was great as well. It was a great game of cricket. And um, the West Indies kind of came back with, you know, right of the death. Um, anyway, it was it was sensational. So um, I kind of fell uh, for Old Trafford, really, in that moment. I also watched, just for one very quick story, I also watched England retain the ashes at Old Trafford once. Um, one of those kind of once-in-a-lifetime moments, you know, to, to see that kind of thing happening. And what actually happened was, because uh, we were living on Warwick Road at the time, which is which is right next to Old Trafford, between Old Trafford Stadium and the cricket ground. So we got we got we got some cheap tickets, I think, because we were living nearby. And um, so this you know mega sold out event, and and we managed to get some really dirt cheap tickets. And it basically rained all day, uh, which meant that we we got there. I think we saw like two bowls. 
and uh, two bowls and it and it rained and so it got rained off for the rest of the day but it got to the point where australia could no longer get back in it and so by default england won england retained the ashes uh, and they came out on the balcony and waved at everybody so it's it's probably i mean it's a terrible story it's a terrible game of cricket i watched i watched like i watched basically no cricket but i can at least tell you that i did watch england retain the ashes at old trafford which i think is we could all agree is what actually counts. Um, uh, but there's going to be some cricket there this weekend. Uh, Friday night, uh, Lancashire Lightning are taking on Derbyshire Falcons. Uh, not quite the Ashes, but uh, this is Vitality Blast, which is kind of a bit quicker and a bit more intense, isn't it, uh, than, than a long test series. Um, and it looks like it might be a bit wet, but but hopefully there will be some play. So if you've got into the cricket this week and you fancy a night out at Old Trafford, uh, that's really worth looking at, I think. Um, okay, uh, that's it from us for this week. We are going to be back in your podcast feed next week. And um, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to The Mill as well. You'll get more of this quality journalism that you've heard this week. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to do that. For now, though, Yoshi, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>